Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. All right. Um, open your Bibles, please, to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 4. I said that in kind of a surprising way because we've been in the Old Testament for a long, long time. <clears throat> Uh, before we get started here, let me just reiterate what David prayed about here just a moment ago, the Pornified Conference coming up this Saturday. Um, you heard a, a really effective, powerful testimony from Eric Michaels last week. Thank you again, Eric, for that. And um, conference is 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. this Saturday. You're all welcome to come. It's free of charge. Uh, breakfast will be served, breakfast items around 8.30, and uh, lunch will be served also. Uh, some additional items here, we have recently secured childcare, so very grateful for that. Childcare will be available 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. this Saturday. Um, <clears throat> and we would love to have some desserts provided for the lunch, the hospitality team. Uh, are looking for some volunteers. There's a sign-up sheet at the Welcome Center, so if you'd like to bring a dessert on Saturday, we would love for that to happen, and you can sign up at the Welcome Center. So, um, again, conference this Saturday, and, uh, you know, if you think to yourself, I don't have a problem with this, it would still be a valuable conference for you, uh, topics covering a variety of, of issues like parenting and dating someone who has an issue with pornography. Um, I would say as people come and, and talk to me, it's often a, a very common thing mentioned, and so I know a lot of people struggle with it. And uh, perhaps you're one of them and you haven't told anybody, uh, look, there's no shame. We're not looking to guilt trip you. We just want you to come and get help. So uh, we would love for you to come this Saturday to the Pornified Conference. All right, <clears throat> Luke chapter 4. Um, you all know that we are moving our way through the Bible in a sermon series called Route 66, 66 books in the Bible. We're looking to do one sermon per Bible book. And last Sunday, we hit a major milestone. We completed the Old Testament last Sunday. Um, next Sunday, we are going to start the New Testament. But I thought it might be good to take a Sunday to talk about the transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And so that's what we're going to do today just to reflect on that, um, to ask some questions like, what is it that stays the same when we go from the old to the new? And what's different as we go from the old to the new? There are differences, but there are similarities. And it will help us to understand the New Testament if we think a little bit about this. St. Augustine, uh, many centuries ago, said this, <clears throat> the new, referring to the New Testament, the New Testament is in the old, but concealed. The Old Testament is in the new, but revealed. And that's a very handy summary of how the Old and New Testaments relate. They're interconnected. They need each other. But there are things in the Old Testament that are concealed, and we need help in getting them revealed. It'd be a little bit like if you've ever walked through a very dark room, a crowded dark room maybe, and you see lots of shadowy things, you see shapes, but you're not really sure what's a lamp, what's a couch, what's a chair. You're not really sure. You just know there's something there and you're kind of walking through and then you find the light switch and you turn it on 
and the light is cast into the room, and now you see what all these shapes actually are. You see the substance that was casting the shadows. The Old Testament is largely shadows. The New Testament is casting light on these shadows to show us what they are. We've been kind of looking at shadows for about a year and a month now as we've been going through the Old Testament, and now we get the light of the New Testament. That's not to say there's not light in the Old, but there's much that the New Testament helps us to understand about the Old. So that's what we're going to do today. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. Um, It's going to be very topical today. I'm going to read one passage, but we're going to kind of be moving around different biblical texts. It's going to be you know, kind of theoretical, explanatory here. I'm going to try to just get some things straight in our minds as we get ready to enter into um, <clears throat> the New Testament. But the text we're going to read here is one that points to another very clear difference between um, the Old and New Testaments. We, we could also describe these two as promise and fulfillment. The Old Testament is promise, the New Testament is fulfillment, and we see that in particular here in this text in Luke chapter 4. So if you want to stand for the reading of God's word, verses 16 through 21 is what I will, I will read. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a paperback Bible underneath the chair in front of you. This text is on page 501, 501 of the paperback Bibles. Luke 4, 16 through 21 <clears throat> reads like this. It says, He, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Lord, would you please by your spirit give us wisdom, understanding, illumination as we look to your word to behold the wonderful things that are here for us in your gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, here's Luke chapter 4, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's in Nazareth where uh, he had been brought up. Not where he was born, but where he was brought up. And uh, the, the text is pretty clear. He's uh, wanting to read from the scriptures, a, a passage, a, a, a scroll is handed to him. This scroll is from Isaiah 61, and he reads from Isaiah 61, and there's this kind of dramatic scene where he hands it to the attendant, and everybody's looking to him. They all want to know what Jesus is going to say. How is he going to interpret this passage? What, what meaning is he going to give to this passage? And all Jesus says is, this is fulfilled in me. The substance of this passage has found its culmination in my coming. That's what he says. Of course, Isaiah 61 from the Old Testament. Now we're here in the New Testament or New Testament times, and Jesus is saying the Old Testament was promised, but now it's fulfilled because the Messiah, the Savior, has finally 
come? And we get one answer to a question that is often asked, which is how are people in the Old Testament saved? Because they didn't know the name of Jesus. So how were they saved? And I think the answer to that is they were saved in a very similar way that we are saved, that is faith in the Savior. But in their case, it was faith in the coming Savior, the promised Savior. They saw these promises about one who was going to come. They hoped and put faith in that. We are saved by faith in the Savior who's already come. They looked ahead. We look back. So some difference, but the basic essence of salvation is basically the same, faith in the Savior. So that's a very simple way. I mean, if you just want to go home with just one thing about the difference between old and new, promise and fulfillment. That's pretty good. But there's more to say. There's a lot more, and that's what we'll take uh, the next uh, few minutes here to look at. So I want to look at this in three categories, three areas, God's community, God's covenants, and God's kingdom. Let's think about those three things in terms of transition from the Old to the New Testament. First thing, God's community. God's community. In other words, who are God's people today? How do we answer that question? Who are God's people? Clearly, in the Old Testament, as we've been reading through this from Genesis, the answer has been Israel. Israel, the the Jewish nation, was regarded to be God's people. So God's people at that time in the Old Testament was bound up in ethnicity, was bound up in in a particular nation state. For somebody to be saved or to be redeemed, that person would have to become a Jew, would have to adopt an ethnic identity. That's the way it, it was then. But in the New Testament, things have changed. There's a pretty striking change here. The people of God, the community of God's people, is not located in Israel. It's located in the church, in the church of Jesus Christ. God's people today are not located in one ethnic nation, but spread throughout every tongue, every tribe, and every nation throughout the the world. So let me show this to you. One example from Scripture, and we could refer to many, but here's one, I think one of the clearest. Here's the book of Exodus, God speaking to Israel, God's community, God's people in the Old Testament. He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession, just take note of that word, among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Book of Exodus, Old Testament. Fast forward to the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 2. Written not to Israel, but to the church, to believers in Jesus Christ. And it says this, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Do you see the connection there? How Peter is taking the description that was used in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel and now applying it with very specific words to the church. And even using this word nation, a holy nation, obviously he means that in a symbolic sense because the church today is not located in any one nation. But it's referred to as a kind of a nation. Things have changed. There's a difference now. 
the church is not replacing Israel. That's the way some people say it, and that's not what we mean. It's that the church is the fulfillment of all that God intended for Israel. And now it has expanded out finding its fulfillment in the transcultural, transnational church of Jesus Christ. So sometimes people ask, and maybe you've thought of this, you know, what nation, what country in the world is God for today? You know, what, what nation would he side with if there was a war? You know, who would he behind, be behind? And the answer, I think, is, is not Israel and not the United States. Sorry. <laughs> it's the church, the people of God that God is for is the church. That doesn't mean we can't love our nation. That doesn't mean we can't respect Israel and love Israel. That doesn't mean that we uh, don't have hope that there will be a mass conversion of Jews one day. And I think there's biblical reason to expect that that might happen. We pray for that. We look for that. But in terms of who God is for, who God is committed to, who are God's people, we can't think of that in terms of nation states anymore. We think of it in terms of the spiritual body of the church of Jesus Christ. That means there are believers, God's people everywhere, in the United States, in India, in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, in Russia, in Rwanda, in China, in North Korea, even in atheist nations. God's people exist. And in so-called Christian nations, unbelievers exist. The church is spread throughout the whole world. A guy named Michael Goheen, I've been quoting him frequently in this series. The book is A Light to the Nations. He says, unlike Israel, the church is sent to live in the midst of the cultures of the world. The law that had bound Israel as one national people is no longer in force. God's people now live as citizens not only of the kingdom of God, but also of the many cultures of the world. So here we have another little bit of a, of a difference, and that is that in Israel, through the Old Testament, maybe you notice that people were always invited to come to Israel. Come and be part of Israel. It was people flowing to Israel. Now we get to the New Testament, the New Covenant, and now it's the church going out into the world to preach the gospel, to call people to faith so that God's people exist in many different nations, many different cultures. So who are God's people? The church of Jesus Christ. Well, there's another question we might ask about this, and that is what is the moral standard for God's people? What is the law to which we are responsible? Um, it's very clear, isn't it, that part of the Old Testament law is not binding on us today right? We don't stone people anymore like the Old Testament commands. We don't have a problem with wool and linen being woven together in an outfit. We're not bothered by that. And Christians sometimes are criticized because what they say is, you Christians, you just pick and choose what you want from the Old Testament. You know, you're always talking about homosexuality being wrong. You take that, but, you know, when the Bible says you shouldn't eat shellfish, well, you don't have a problem with that. So you throw out the shellfish and you keep the other one. What's the deal? And it's a good question. But here, I think, is, is an answer to that. Israel, again, as God's people in the Old Testament, played a very unique historical role. 
Israel had a, a, a responsibility and a calling that no other nation has ever had in all of history. They were a theocracy, that is, they were ruled directly by God. And there was a connection between church and state so that they were one and the same. Now, of course, there are some Islamic nations that are kind of like that today. But here in the United States, we like to keep those separate. Well, in Israel, they were absolutely the same. They were a theocracy. But it's not that way anymore. God doesn't relate to Israel in that way anymore. And so some things have fallen away from the way God dealt with Israel. So if you think of a building being constructed, whenever you see a big skyscraper being built, generally what comes up around the skyscraper is scaffolding. And the scaffolding is there while the substance of the thing is being built. And once the substance of the building is finished, the scaffolding falls away. It's not necessary anymore. And part of the Old Testament law is that way, kind of like scaffolding. So a good way to think of it is to think of three kinds of moral law. And the first kind is the civil law. The civil law, that is God gave laws to govern the way the Jewish society should operate in the ancient Near East, thousands of years before the coming of Christ, 2,000 or so years ago. There were specific laws required for that particular culture. Now, there was morality, of course, tied into that. But a lot of those laws don't necessarily apply because we don't live in Israel today. Uh, an example of that would be the dietary laws. You know, in the Bible, a lot of restrictions on what you can and can't eat. Well, if you look at the book of Acts, chapter 10... There's this vision given to Peter and a voice says to him, rise Peter, kill and eat. Before Peter were all these animals. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So he's thinking about Old Testament dietary laws. I can't eat these things, I'll be unclean. And then the voice, which is a divine voice, comes back to him a second time and says, what God has made clean, do not call common. And so what we see here is that the dietary restrictions are being overturned, that they're being put aside. And so they're not binding on us today. That's uh, an example of civil law falling away. Ceremonial law is another part of God's law. Th those are exhortations, instructions about what should take place in the temple and how rams and bulls and sheep should be offered up. How they should be offering sacrifices, very specific instructions. Well, this is an easy one because, you know, Jesus has come and has fulfilled everything that those sacrifices pointed to. So we don't need to do those anymore, thank God, praise God. We don't need to do those things. And so that part of the law falls away also. But there's a third part of the law that we would call the moral law. And that is still binding, that still continues. The moral law of God is transcultural, transnational for all times and all peoples in all places. And one of the reasons we know that the moral law continues is because you can look in the New Testament and see it reiterated over and over again, particularly Romans 13, which I think summarizes pretty much the entire Ten Commandments, which we just had read here uh, a little while ago. The moral law is binding and continues. The civil and ceremonial law don't. Now, there are some overlap, and it's not quite as tidy as I'm presenting it. I admit that, but these are still, I think, helpful categories for us to think about the ongoing relevance of God's law. Some stays the same, some goes away. 
Okay, let's move on to the next thing. God's covenants. God's covenants. What stays the same? What's different regarding the covenants? Now, there's no way we can get away from this concept of covenant. It's just all throughout the scriptures. And covenant's kind of a hard thing to understand because we don't really have a, a direct correlation to covenant in our society today. Um, the closest thing you can think of is a contract, but that's not even quite accurate because a covenant is a lot more personal than a contract. Covenants are motivated by love and desire for relationship. Contracts generally aren't. <laughs> but there's a lot of similarities between contract and covenant. Covenant is just simply the way God has chosen to enter into relationship with us. He wants relationship with you and with me, and he does it through covenant. And he does it because he loves us, and he chooses covenant as the mechanism for that to happen. So as we've been looking through the Old Testament... And we've been noticing Israel's repeated sin, right? Particularly just having gotten done with the minor prophets. Prophets are constantly coming, threatening the people with their disobedience, threatening exile. And of course, exile finally happens because of their sin. But another way to say this, and maybe even a more biblical way to say it, is the people of God suffered the consequences of breaking the covenant. That was the problem. God was able to fulfill his end of the bargain in the covenant, but the people weren't. And God set out blessings for the covenant, but also curses if you break the covenant. And one of those curses is, I'm going to vomit you out of the land. God's people continued to break the covenant, and God did exactly that. And exiled them. And so that created a need for a new covenant. Jeremiah 31 talks about this, this promise, there's a need for a new covenant. Hebrews 9.15 tells us that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. So we have a very simple difference here. Old Testament is the old covenant. New Testament is the new covenant. There's, there's, there's a difference. There's a transition. But the big question is, how different? <laughs> how different? Are these covenants and Christians for centuries have been debating this and depending on what church you go to and what tradition you come from you'll have a different view on this there are some traditions that say there is a radical difference between the two there are some who would say God basically looks at the old covenant as if it were a failed experiment it didn't work and so God decided now to discard it put it aside and he's going to start over brand new with the new covenant and if you ever meet somebody who says the Old Testament is not very important, they might believe that way. I mean, there was a very famous preacher a little while ago who came under controversy for saying, we need to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, he said. Now, I don't know if that was motivated by these things we're talking about today, but you know, that's, that's a, a very sad thing to say. That, that's a good way to impoverish your faith, to not love and respect the Old Covenant or the Old Testament. But there are some who just say, you know, Old Testament's not for us, and, and they want to put it aside. And, and we would disagree with that very strongly. So this is one of the things that sets us apart. It's a distinctive of the Presbyterian Reformed tradition. That is that we believe that the Old and New Covenants are fundamentally the same. There are differences, yes, but in essence, they're the same. It's one God who has one plan of redemption for one people through one Savior 
by one way, faith, not by works. There's a unity there in the covenants. And I'll show just two passages. Again, we could show a lot, but two passages that I think demonstrate this pretty well. Acts chapter 3. <clears throat> all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him, that's all old covenant, they uh, also proclaimed these days. They were talking about you know, Acts' New Testament, New Covenant. The Old Covenant prophets were speaking about New Covenant days. And then it says this, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. Christians, your son, sons and daughters of Abraham. You are offspring of the covenant that God made in, in Genesis. Saying to Abraham and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Quoting Genesis. Do you see the connection that's being drawn there? There's not a radical disconnect. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're a son or daughter of Abraham. Galatians says something similar. Know then that it is those of faith in Jesus who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. We think of the gospel as a New Testament thing. What this is saying is the gospel was there in the Old Testament. God preached the gospel to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Do you see the connection there, the unity there, the continuity there? A guy named Randy Booth says this, the advent of Christ was not the beginning of something brand new. Rather, it was the culmination and climax of God's ancient plan to save his people. The Old Testament was not passing away, it was expanding. So you are going to be limited in how much you can understand the New Testament if you don't know the Old Testament. Your understanding of it will be impoverished because everything we see in the New Testament has its connections in the Old and is on a culmination of what we've seen in the Old, just in the same way that an acorn grows to be an oak tree. The New Covenant is the oak tree. The Old Covenant is the acorn. So the problem here is not with the covenant. That's not the problem. It's not like God said, oh, I made a mistake in the Old Testament. I wish I wouldn't have done that Old Covenant thing. Let me try this. That's not the problem. The problem was the people. And we've seen that, right, throughout the Old Testament. It's the people who continuously rebel and break the obligations of the covenant. And so what is needed, friends, is someone who can obey the covenant. That's what the Old Testament is screaming in every book. Who will finally be a covenant keeper? There's no Jew who can do it. Even the best of them couldn't do it. David couldn't do it. Solomon couldn't do it. Hezekiah couldn't do it. Josiah couldn't do it. Oh, would someone please come along who could be a covenant keeper finally? And Jesus Christ is that man. He comes and he obeys the covenant obligations perfectly. Everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. And so here we see some, some of the differences. Like if you look in the book of, of Hebrews, it talks about the priesthood. And, and we see some differences between Old Covenant and New Covenant. For instance, in the Old Covenant, it says that the priesthood was an earthly ministry. But in Hebrews 8, it says that Jesus' ministry is a heavenly ministry. He enters into the throne room of grace. 
In Hebrews 9, it says in the Old Covenant, all the priests would eventually die. But not Jesus. He died once, but will never die again, and he lives forever. He'll never die. In the Old Covenant, they needed multiple priests to do the work of the temple. Hebrews 9.26 tells us, no, we only now need one priest, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. Just one. He's good enough. And in the Old Covenant, the priest offered up the blood of animals But Jesus comes as the fulfiller of the new covenant and offers up his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption and making the offering of the blood of animals unnecessary and obsolete. So you see, there there are differences. Jesus makes it different. He makes it better. But it's still the fulfillment of the very essence of what the old covenant always looked to and hoped for and anticipated. So, by way of application, um, and um, it's, it's hard sometimes to find just direct applications here. So, again, I'm, I'm trying to put things in perspective so that we can understand the difference here. But, but here is one um, application. We just baptized a, a child. And I know there's a question that comes from a lot of people, which is, why do you baptize children? Why do you baptize infants? And the reason at its most basic level, has to do with what I've just been explaining to you. The the unity of the covenants. That the old and the new are basically the same. That we are children of Abraham, and God commanded Abraham to circumcise his children. And we're children of Abraham. There's a continuity there. Children were part of the covenant. They received the sign of the covenant in the old covenant. And we just look to the New Covenant and say, we don't see that that's changed. A guy named Benjamin Warfield said it's very simple. It's like this. God established his covenant with Abraham. He put children in that covenant. He has nowhere put them out. Therefore, they're still in and are entitled to the sign that represents that covenant. That, that's why we baptize children. It's not because we think it saves them. Nobody is saved by receiving the sign. No one is saved by being part of the covenant. That's something that's always been the same. It's always repentance and faith in the coming Savior or the Savior who's already come. But the unity of the covenants convince us that baptizing the members of the covenants, which includes children, just like in the old covenant, is a required thing to do. So that was a question for your life groups. I know that will probably foster a lot of discussion tonight and this week, and I hope it does. Uh, If you have other questions about that, please let me know. But let's go on to the third thing, and it's this, God's kingdom, God's kingdom. One thing you might remember when we first started this Route 66 sermon series is what I told you is that the Bible is basically a story. That's the best way to look at the scriptures. It's not a bunch of loose, disconnected books. It's one story and all of you and me are players in that story you are part of God's story and there's one unifying theme to this whole story and we can talk about this too maybe you disagree but I would say the one unifying theme of the whole Bible is kingdom kingdom here's what kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule that's the theme of of the whole scripture, kingdom. 
Uh, those of you who have read the Jesus Storybook Bible might remember at the very beginning it says that the Bible is an adventure story. It is. Why do we get bored when we read the Bible? We shouldn't because it is an adventure story about a young hero, or we might say a king, who leaves his palace and his throne to rescue the ones that he loves. It's, it seems like a fairy tale, kind of, but the best thing about this story is that it's not a fairy tale. It's true. It's a story of the world in which we live. It's the story of reality, and it all revolves around this concept of kingdom from the very start to the very end. It's about kingdom. Um, there's a well, here, here's Jesus who comes on the scene in Mark chapter 1. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So you see the connection here between gospel and kingdom. Jesus talks about the kingdom over and over and over again. And so let me just show you how this kingdom theme goes through the entire scripture. And I take this from this book by Vaughn Roberts, God's Big Picture. I'd highly recommend it. You should all read this book. It's like 120 pages. It's, it's very simple, but it gives this overarching biblical story, and he describes it in terms of kingdom. And so here's how he says it. He says, first of all, you have the pattern of the kingdom. That's the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve in God's place, the garden, under God's rule. God's people in God's place, under God's rule, Adam and Eve. But there's the perished kingdom after that because Adam and Eve rebel against God and they are then what? Kicked out of the garden. They've lost their place. They've lost fellowship with God. They're alienated from one another. The kingdom has perished. But then there's a promised kingdom. God comes to Abraham and he promises that a nation is going to come from Abraham and this nation is the one in whom the kingdom will be reestablished. A promise of the future kingdom, but that kingdom is partial because the people of Israel, as I've been saying over and over again, obey sometimes, but often they don't obey. They get to the promised land, yes, but they end up getting kicked out of the promised land, so there's some kingdom, but a lot of kingdom that's not there. It's a partial kingdom in Israel, and so then there's a prophesied kingdom. The prophets come, and they give hope to God's people by saying that a Messiah is coming, a king, a king is coming, and he is going to make everything right, and he is going to rescue you from judgment. And that's where we left off in Malachi, the prophesied kingdom. And now when we start the New Testament, we're going to start with the present kingdom. And that's when Jesus comes on the scene, like we just read in Mark chapter 1, and he says, the kingdom of God is here because I'm here is what Jesus says. It's the start of the New Testament in Jesus, the king who has come to rescue his people, not by crushing his enemies, but by dying for them, and is resurrected from the dead, which now leads us to the proclaimed kingdom. And that's the place where all of us are in the story, the proclaimed kingdom. We are called as his people to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom until he comes again for the perfected kingdom. When Jesus returns, the kingdom is fully restored. 
God's people are back in God's place. The new Jerusalem, the new earth, fully under God's rule forever and ever and ever. And we look forward to the king coming. Our hero will come again and perfect the kingdom. Until then, we proclaim it and we live it, knowing that the kingdom is present in the coming of the Messiah. So you don't see a lot about kingdom in the Old Testament, but man, it becomes very visible in the New. And we will see that as we continue through the New Testament. So the question here, friends, is, is just this. You know, where is your allegiance ultimately? Is your allegiance to the kingdom of this world and all of its values and all of its idolatries? Or is your allegiance to the kingdom of Christ? In what kingdom do you belong? In what kingdom are you a citizen? And simply by turning from your sin and believing in Jesus, you can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son he loves, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me encourage you to think about reading through the New Testament with us. We'll start with Matthew next week. Um, it's a little easier to read, read through the new than, than to read through the old. So if you didn't do so well reading through the old, let's, let's start again next week with the book of Matthew. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its richness, its unity, for the truth that is on every page. I pray, God, that you would make us a people who love your word and study it and know it and, um, and, and live it and find great hope and joy in all of the promises that you have made, which are fulfilled in Jesus, our Savior and Lord. In his name we pray.